And we're back for another episode of Startup Hustle, a podcast for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. If you want to start, own, or build a business, then you're in the right place. We bring you the real truth about what it's like to take something from concept to launch, from growth, innovation, experience, failing, or winning big, we've got you covered. So let's get down to business with another episode of Startup Hustle, brought to you by Fullscale.io. And we're back, back for another episode of Startup Hustle. Matt DeCourcy here with Matt Watson. Hi, Matt. What's going on? Oh, just ready for part six of our series about how to start a tech company. And we're finally going to talk about stuff that isn't cautionary, but yet it still kind of is. So Matt, you know, I have this great idea and it's worth like a zillion dollars and I want you to buy part of it. And I just think you should because you should. So it's really valuable. Are you cool with that? Yeah, sure. Whatever. That's fine. Do you take um, third party handwritten payroll checks? Yeah. Yeah, we take it all. Crypto, doll hairs, dollars, really any of it. But, you know, what we're going to talk about today is is a really pressing question that so many startup founders have. And it's, I mean, the answers to how to value your equity. I mean, it's all over the place. It is really something that I really, it really, it's just really all over the place. Now, Matt, before we get too far into that and speaking in terms of investments, today's episode of Startup Hustle is brought to you by Our Crowd. And if you wish you were in on some of the early and best performing IPOs of 2019 and 2020, Our Crowd investors were. Now you can join them in what's next. With Our Crowd, accredited investors have access to invest directly, easily, and importantly, early. Our crowd investors have benefited from our crowd companies IPOing like Beyond Meat and being bought by other companies like Intel, Nike, Microsoft, and Oracle. If you go to ourcrowd.com forward slash hustle, you can learn all about it. Go to the link in the show notes. Now, we're talking about investing. We're talking about valuing equity for a company. I mean, Matt, where do we start? Well... You know, so the first time I started a company, uh, me and the other gentleman owned the company 50-50. And, uh, you know, this time around with StockFi, I was the only founder, so I owned 100% of it. And then it was different because, like, when I hired my first employees, you know, you got to figure out, are they part of the team or not part of the team? Like, every startup is different. So I'm excited to get into this. Yeah. And, you know, this is this is a question that so many people have. And we've run into this. You, we've got either clients from full scale coming in, asking questions about it, people that have wanted us to invest in their businesses. And there really are I, there really are a whole lot of different ways to determine the value of your equity. I think one of the things that startup founders and entrepreneurs well, they often overvalue the equity and they often undervalue the equity. But I think in the end, no one really knows what the equity's worth until later so are you right or are you wrong that's pretty subjective well you potentially blow up the company and never get off the ground because you're fighting about who owns how much of nothing 
Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of, we run into a lot of companies or people that have an idea and it's still vapor at this point, you know, it's vapor and paper, you know, ideas and business plans, they don't necessarily have any revenue. And there's a whole lot of different, you know, methods that uh, people go through to look at what a company could be worth. Some of them more scientific than others. Uh, one thing I do know is once a company is actually started and has revenue and all of that, it's a little easier, but pre-revenue is a real challenge. So one of the things, and all right, so I always learn so much, Matt, when I, you know, when I do episodes of Startup Hustle with you, and I have learned today about the Berkus method, or have you ever heard of the Berkus method? Nope. Okay, so... This is, this is a, a method of startup valuation and equity valuation that is often used for pre-revenue companies. And they're going to look at, at five major factors. And they are, do you have a sound idea? Have you built a prototype yet? Do you have a quality management team? Does, do you or that team have any strategic relationships? And have you had a product rollout or any sales? So the yes or no nature of each of those goes into factoring what your equity could be worth. Well, and it's totally different if you and I are like, hey, maybe we should start a company. I've got an idea versus uh, this big company came to me. They begged me to build something for them. Uh, they offered us $5 million a year for the product. We just need to build it. So uh, do you want to do this thing? Like that's, those are totally different scenarios, right? And um, I know a company here in Kansas City that's in the latter. Like they have one customer that is their entire business, but their business has really grown from that one customer that seeded all of it. And um, sometimes you got big companies that are begging, like we need to solve a problem. We can't do it. We don't have time. Can somebody else just come solve this thing for us and we'll pay you a bunch of money. And you're, you're the lucky guy if you can, uh, you can fall into one of those situations. But the absolutely, when you're starting a company, the more of these things on your list you've got put together, the way easier it is to raise capital and the way easier or the way better your valuation is. Yeah. And I think also when it comes to the value of your equity, the stage that your business at is at is a major factor. Like I said, you, you look at full scale or Stackify or really any company that's already uh, on has their feet on the ground and they're running. They have a proven model. They have a number of clients. Now you mentioned a company that has one client that isn't necessary. That doesn't necessarily check the box for sound idea. Like, cause the problem is, and it, with that company, when it comes to their valuation is they have a strategic relationship. Yeah. What happens if that goes away? And that sure. would be that would be a really difficult that it would be very difficult. Well, I, I'd have a hard time placing a value on that company. Would you? Yep. I mean, it depends on if you've got a a contract and money in hand. And the 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 one thing in this list that probably to me is the can be the most valuable is who the management team is. And I think the more I'm around startups, the the more I uh, appreciate that part of it. I mean, can you imagine a a startup and then the exact same startup, but Elon Musk owns part of it. Sure. And, and with that, you would have obviously some quality management, you would have a quality management team, but the strategic relationships, 
And, you know, some of that has a huge effect on your ability to draw more money in. Now, let's just play hypothetical here, Matt. So you and I, you know, whether those of you listening think that that the mats have done have done okay, a lot of people do. And so that would be a contribute that would be a contributing element to a quality management team. But a quality management team is also balanced. One of the things that's been really helpful as we've built full scale is I'm non-technical and you're technical and we have specialties and and honestly passion and interest in different things that led to a well-rounded all of it. Yep. All right. Yeah. And it's and it's no different. It's no different than thinking about, hey, we're going to start a football team. Who's going to play on the team? I don't know. We'll find some guys versus like, hey, we got Patrick Mahomes on the team. Yeah. (laughs) Totally different. Okay. That's where we're start. That's where we're going to start. That's where we're going to be led. And by the way, when it comes to a sound idea, I mean, that's back to that product market fit that we've spent a lot of time talking about. Uh, you know, the, the sound idea has got to have an addressable market that it well, it's, it's uh, the, uh, the TAM or the total addressable market will affect the future everything of a business. Because if you're total addressable market, like, well, when we use the company with one client, if their total addressable market is only that one client, that could be yep. problematic. But if you have a commitment, so I, I I'm totally not a tech startup, but as you're aware, a few years ago, I made an investment in a moving company that, uh, and this moving company, they had only one client, but they also had significant contracts and future guaranteed business if X, Y, and Z would have occurred. Now, and I did make that investment. It's worked out very well. It's for both myself and the guy that, and the founder of that company. Now, the the problem was, and that was something I addressed, is if that contract or that relationship went away, it would have dramatically changed the business. But there was a guaranteed contract with the guaranteed length, and we set it up in a way that I knew at a minimum I wouldn't lose money. Yeah. So there are ways to to set that valuation now. All right. So the next next on our list, you have comparable transactions. And uh, in a world where a lot of people do a lot of stuff, there is usually similarities to companies. All right. So let's use Gigabook for an example. There's a whole lot of booking stuff out there, right? So you look at transactions that have occurred. Uh, whether they be exits, investments, or other stuff that could affect it. Like you kind of run into that with Stackify and, you know, go to stackify.com if you want to see what, what Matt does with most of his day. Um, and, you know, there are, there are comparable application performance management things. There's an industry that goes around it. I mean, when it comes to comparable transactions, what, what's your input on that? Yeah, definitely looking at comparable multiples, uh, things like that. But I think it also depends on the industry. Let's, you know, take full scale, for example, if it's a service based business, you're like, okay, for this kind of business, it's usually one and a half times annual revenue or, or whatever, whatever the you know valuation is. And then it's just kind of industry standard, like if you owned an accounting firm, or, you know, some type of company, they usually have kind of very, you know, industry specific valuation methods that you may just kind of fit into. Well, let's talk about that for a second because you talk, you mentioned the word multiple. So multiple is, is almost, well, in tech companies is almost always referring to your revenue. 
mm-hmm. and and different types of of tech and software companies will trade. Uh, technically, I I think Fullscale is still a tech company, even though we do tech services. But that's a completely different valuation than your other business, Stackify which draw well does draw a higher multiple and there's a lot of reasons for that uh software is a lot more scalable as our friend neil sharma mentioned when in episode 150 software shows up to work every day it can be a lot more predictable and it's also oftentimes sticky meaning once a company or a client or a user uh, basically embeds that in the use of their business, they oftentimes stay with it for a very long time. And that has a lot. So when it comes to value in your equity, you're, whether you're a tech company or a different kind of company, you're going to have a diff. There's a lot of variance. And, and yeah. we've even seen like, like at one point, there are certain software. Well, okay. You look at something like Facebook might be a really high multiple because who else, who who do they compete with at this point? I mean, their competitors are just other social network platforms or different stuff like that. I mean, wh- where have you seen uh, multiples just look outrageous before? Uh, it's usually companies that have very high margins and they're growing very, very fast, very, very fast. Um, True. You, you see that even in the public markets today, you've got you know, we have a competitor that was trading at like 30 or 40 times multiple, which is like off the chart, but they were growing at a insane pace. I, I think another good example of this with the comparable transactions, if you're an early stage company, um, let's take Uber for an example. Let's say Uber raises $50 million in their series A. Well, if you're Lyft, it makes it a lot easier to go around to investors and say, Hey, look, our competitors just raised, you know, $50 million or whatever. We can do this too you know, jump on board, get behind us, we'll compete with them. And it helps you have some kind of comparables, you know, um, within the same industry or, you know, marketplace going on. And you have a good point about the growth. And that's where those multiples often do look like a hockey stick with their growth. Because uh, as a company has gained traction and is moving forward and growing in a predictable way, you say, hey, look, you know, this is where our revenue is already headed to be in 12 months. So, me selling you this now isn't really fair to us because six months from now, that'll be 40% more or 12 months. And that's always the fast growing company when that comes, you know, when that comes into it. So, you know, one of the things I think with all these methods that we're talking about that I think is important to remember is really, if you're in the earliest stages of starting a tech company, much like we're talking about in this whole series, which by the way, you can listen to every Wednesday here on startup hustle, um, so a lot of this kind of comes down to what you feel comfortable and good about, right? Absolutely. Uh, so, but you're never really right or wrong. You can't, there's, you're never going to ink a deal and immediately you're like, okay, that was right. That was wrong. I mean, these are all, this is all TBD kind of stuff. You never really know until the end, whether it was great or not. There's a lot of shades of gray in the middle somewhere. Yeah. And then, I mean, really, it is kind of more on your own per set of personal expectations, what you feel good with, and often who you're partnering with. So, yeah, absolutely. you know, and, and, let, and let's throw that in there, Matt, because I'd rather take a lower valuation from an amazing investor slash partner or contributor than to take a higher valuation from just a checkbook. Yeah, it's like when you watch the show Shark Tank and you see people give all their money, all their stock away, but they get, you know, these 
celebrity investors involved that they hope will make a big difference. And who knows if they really do? We don't, we don't see the whole story, but you like to think it will. And uh, you're willing to give up more of the pie to have them involved. You know where you will see the whole story, Matt? On Startup Hustle TV. You got it. Check out our new web series. <laughs> We're telling you the real story. And that's the good and the bad, which by the way, if you go and watch episode 2.0, you will get to see my reaction to turning down a million dollar investment offer and hear about why. Go check that out on YouTube. Um, and you know, the the one thing when it comes to equity and investment, and whatever, this can be very excruciating. So uh, be par- prepared to drive yourself crazy. All right, next on the list, the scorecard valuation method. Now, Matt, this is there's this is very similar to Berkus and some of the things that are, that are that are on here. And I'm going to cruise through this pretty quickly because this is a list of attributes. So they'll give uh, zero to thirty percent of the valuation to the strength of the team, zero to twenty five percent to the size of the opportunity, fi- zero to fifteen percent to the product or service, zero to ten percent for the competitive environment marketing sales channels and partnerships up to another 10%, the need for additional investment five, and then a 5% wild card for other. Sounds about right. I mean, it's pretty similar, but you know, one of the things is look at the second biggest one on the, who who are what 55% of this potential scorecard is the strength of the team and the size of the opportunity. Um, I mean, think about that. That is without a doubt that the biggest bet is on the jockey there, not the horse. The, the yeah, really horse is 15%. It's 15% the product or service. Really shows uh, how important the team is. It's all about the team. I mean, it's 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 amazing how how much of an echo we hear with that. Because we have asked and I have asked, Anybody that invests money, who do you who do you go with, the jockey or the horse? And it's a, literally a unanimous response, or a, a, is it unanimous? Yes, a unanimous response. I almost said anonymous. It's an anonymous response, Matt. Nobody answered the question. <laughs> no, but it's unanimous. Everyone, it's got to start with great people because uh, a great idea run by a terrible team is not going to happen. So, okay. Well, which, which, do you agree with this? Like when you look at this list, like, cause competitive environment of zero to 10%, I mean, that has a third of the potential weight of the strength of the team. That means that with the scorecard valuation method that potentially you could have, you could enter a highly competitive and saturated market. But if you have the right people and the right size of opportunity or totally addressable market, then, then it's where equity could, your equity, yeah. Do you agree with that? I think I think if you have the right team and business model, right, you can be disruptive in a in a market that you don't think is ripe for disruption. So, I mean, absolutely. Always back to the team. So, okay, now we're going to get into some some fancy stuff here. How about the cost to duplicate approach? Which you know what this? I mean, this actually isn't that fancy. This is almost like the buyer build uh, outlook. Yeah, and, you know, and like, so. And so somebody, as somebody who works in tech, this one's always interesting because, you know, sometimes rebuilding software is way easier than buying somebody else's company and then integrating it into your own and figuring out how to do all that stuff. Sometimes it's just easier to be like, I'm just going to rewrite this stuff and bolt it onto our other things we already have. Um, sometimes the cost to, to duplicate it is way easier even. But usually when you think about an investor's 
you know, an investor may look at your, like say Gigabook, for example, and be like, you know, the company's young, whatever. Why don't I just hire three developers and just rewrite this stuff? Like I could just do that myself. Why would I, why would I invest in you? And if you've got a super simple product that doesn't have a well-defined market and a lot of traction, you know, somebody could copy you and, uh, and compete with you. It can always happen. Well, I'll give you an example. So, you know, an uh, in Instagram, you can only, you can only put one link anywhere in anything that's a real link and that's in your profile, right? So a lot of people, including us, you often use something called Linktree, which is a super simplistic thing. Like, honestly, you could, you, you know, Gigabook has a Linktree option, a Linktree widget in it. And, uh, and that's an example of that cost duplicate approach where you could duplicate or build that product very quickly and very easily. And now it becomes a race to marketing. So with the cost to duplicate approach, you know, it's like, and this is, this is really more so for things that exist. So you'll, you'll, things that you'll be considering with this are like development costs, the cost of creating prototypes, uh, patents, perhaps more, and then honestly, timeline. So, yeah. you know, you like, you use Gigabook as a comparison as well. It's like, you might want to buy that if you, all right. So Gigabook would be a good acquisition for say a company like Paychex who had 750,000 clients that they could roll it out to very quickly. And paychecks, if you want to talk about that, call me up. So, uh, but the thing is, is like, they might want to, and this is where companies acquire, because they could probably go build it themselves. But why go through the hassle? Why go through the timeline? Why go through all of the chaos? And, and when you can just pick it up now? Well, and, that, and this is a good example with Gigabook where, they might look at that and say, man, it would cost us $5 million in three years to build this. But I bet DeCourcy would take a check for a million bucks. So, uh, you know, so that, that cost to duplicate is interesting. And a lot of times this probably comes into very early stage companies that like they've, like they've been in the basement writing code for a long time, but they don't really have any customers. And you go to them like, hey, you know, you've been working on this for a long time. I'm going to give you X amount of money to take the code and uh, do something with it. Sure. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's the same thing. And, and that's, I mean, that's where a lot of acquisitions occur, a lot of mergers and things like that, because it's like, Acquires. You find a con it, you're ready to go. You're just ready to go. And, yeah. and really in the end, uh, big companies that, that look at valuations and stuff like that. I mean, that's a, a big thing. Like they don't want to sit there for, it's hard to sell to their shareholders or board why we're going to spend two years doing something when we could just fast forward it to now. Cause if they, get revenue now that, well, the acquisition costs pay itself off a lot yeah. faster. Now th that, that particular model doesn't necessarily have a lot to that. That's not, I don't think that's as applicable to like the earliest of stages. Cause if you're still like a pre-revenue pre-product kind of company, then that wouldn't even apply to you. Yeah. Okay. So, all right. The next one. Now, this one's a little more interesting. The risk factor summation method. All right. So this is, this is, a, it consists of some common risk factors such as management, the stage of your business, 
legislation or political risk. And that's a good example there. Cause so you had like, you remember Juul, like the vape company? Yes. Yeah. yeah. That, and then they, they shot up in valuation and then shot back down because they had legislation problems. Uh, you have manufacturing risks, sales and marketing, funding, different competitive com competition, technology, litigation, international reputation, and the a potential lucrative exit. So in this model, they give things like it'll be either a plus factor, a plus plus factor, a yeah. minus factor, or a minus minus factor. So this is almost kind of like the pros and cons list in many ways. Yeah. So like, I, let me. I got a couple of great examples of this. So a really please. good example would be like the marijuana industry, right? You're like, oh, you got a great business. We would normally value you at ten million dollars, but because you're in the marijuana industry, like you're going to take a big haircut. Right. Like your valuation is going to go down several because we're worried about all the risk. Right. Like that. Those are the types of scenarios you're going to run into or like, say, Robinhood right now, who is, you know, the, the the trading app and stuff that people use, like they're getting sued over all the GameStop stuff. Does that affect their valuation? The risk of that? Maybe, maybe Good. not. Like you yeah. never know. Right. But th those are the types of things we're talking about that go into your valuation that you could take a haircut for. Now, speaking of valuations and, and, you know, making investment, I once again want to give ever give a shout out to our crowd. So, you know, today you can join our crowd's investment platform. It's free to sign up and, ch and check it out. I did. I went in and looked at it. It's really an amazing platform. It's got a lot of cool stuff. Now, you do need to be an accredited investor to make certain types of investments or receive them. And that's one of the things that our crowd helps their investors do. Our crowd is investing in medical technology and breakthroughs, ag tech, food production, solutions, and multi-billion dollar robotic industries and more. If you want to take advantage of the professional VC research they use to identify promising companies and funds across a range of sectors, stages, and global locations, well, you can learn more. Go down to the show notes and click the link for ourcrowd.com forward slash hustle. It's free to sign up for the account. Now, one of the things that we should talk about is I mentioned, and while we were thanking our crowd, accredited investors, um, if you're raising money and you're even having the discussion about certain types of equity, well, Matt, what is an accredited investor? Well, they define it a couple different ways. It's somebody who makes more than a certain amount of money a year, like your income has to be a certain amount, or you have to have more than a certain amount of dollars in the bank. And I think it's like $200,000 a year in income or a million dollars in assets, I think. But yeah, Google and your it. assets can't, and, and it can't be your home. Right. either so and so and part of the reason that that exists and uh, is well they there's a low they that they meaning the government and the irs uh, assume that people that are of a certain type uh, level of net worth have a level of sophistication when it comes to investment and making certain decisions with their money and they're trying to protect people and you know, that's that's there for certain reasons. But if you're even discussing like the value of your equity and getting investment and it's not coming from an institutional investor, you do need to do some research and see if you're trans at the transaction you're talking about potentially making or the the uh, equity you're about to sell. If you're even allowed to do that, because you can't accept investment from people that aren't accredited in some regards uh, in some amount. So what, like Matt said, that's a, that could be a moving target and that could change. And you, in this last list, we talk about things like legislative and political risks. Well, we just changed presidents 
and parties, which often creates turbulence. Like, for example, you, you, you mentioned cannabis and marijuana which by the Biden administration is seen as being really favorable and possibly decriminalizing it and whatever. So that was a favorable factor. I mean, there's a whole lot of different stuff. Uh, other thing too, that, uh, that probably increased, uh, became a bigger factor. So manufacturing risk last year, I mean, how much, how many supply chain disruptions and manufacturing problems did we have? And you have all these things that are made in China and overseas. And I mean, that could be, that could be problematic if, things shut down. Yeah. I'm trying to buy flooring right now. And they're like, well, it's a little delayed. Yeah. The Perkins brothers that, that are cast members on Startup Hustle TV and make sure you come over and check that out. I'm having a lot of fun with it. Um, the, you know, there, the, the turnaround on getting windows is months. Like it That's used crazy. to be like four or five weeks and they'd order them. It's hard, it's hard to deliver a home to someone without any windows in it, yeah. especially yeah, when yeah. it's in the mountains. Yep. So, you know, that's that's been a problem for them and other things, too, that and this isn't necessarily related to startups, but the, the price of lumber went up 40 percent um, and uh, last year. And there was just a lot of demand. A lot of people were at home and they were doing home improvements. Yep. And, you know, so some of that can. So, Matt, what's a technology risk that you could that? I mean, when I get this, like what what kind of risk factors would occur with a quote technology risk um, using? Um, specific technology that is at risk of not being supported anymore or not working or uh, security or um, I, I talked to me the other day and their whole business was based around some integration to something, but it was a hostile integration. Let's say like my whole business is around scraping data from Facebook or something. Well, Facebook at any time could turn that off because I'm, I don't have like a license to do that with them. And then my whole business is gone. Right. Like, so sometimes there's like technology you're using that is, you don't necessarily own it or control it or whatever. And you, you get into problems like that. We had some of that back in my Venn Solutions days because we would integrate with uh, basically accounting systems. But some of the uh, integrations were hostile. Like, they weren't like certified interfaces. So the accounting systems could have shut us off at any time. And sometimes they did. And so you, you get huh. risk from things like that. <laughs> I've never heard the term until now. I've never heard the term hostile integration, but it makes so much sense. And that's, I mean, you, you look at so many businesses are reliant on one oh, yeah. form of data or input or something. Yeah. And, you know, another thing too with that is, uh, so, you know, I had a history in the ticket business and, uh, and so did you, you have some history there. And for the longest time, and I have been away from that for years, but I was talking to someone that I know, oh, is this a few months ago. So StubHub used to let their API data um, and, and their sales and other, and other information related to that, you could tap in and access it. And then all of a sudden you couldn't. And they and they started charging money for it, and that became like that. They just really, really, really flipped yeah. the business model um, on its head because what was free now wasn't, and yep. it, you know, and and so now they had to change their pricing structure, which caused a lot of their clients to quit because they had to raise their prices. It was just, a, I mean, and, and that's I that makes sense. Tech, yep. Technological risks. I think another thing too is certain platforms, and we see this a lot at full scale is. Well, I mean, not a, a ton, but, you know, occasionally people call us up and they're looking for, they're using some technology that was all the rage 15 years ago and now nobody uses it. And yeah, that, so that's another which means you, can't, you can't find people to work on. Yes. 
And that's a different kind of risk. Like uh, I have uh, working with a company now that does a lot of programming in Perl. And they're like, we literally can't find people that even know Perl. So that's yep. a huge risk to the company. They're like we can't support our own product. We can't improve it. We, you know, it's a liability. And, and also that can dramatically raise the price of, and we see that happen a lot too, because, well, it's, it's either with old, it's either with old kind of technology that isn't too common because if you need, a, like you said, a Perl developer, you do. Well, if other people need it too, now you're competing for a shrinking pool. Yep. And another another thing we run into a lot, and we see this, this is very common, is all of a sudden, okay, so like React, which is a front-end technology, is suddenly has become so popular, there aren't enough people to work on it. And there are, I mean, man, we got a waiting list at full scale for people that want qualified react developers and there's a very small pool of them everywhere because it hasn't yep. even been out that long so yep. you know you run into that and and that what that causes is it's not all uh, always about the supply and demand factors it's also about can you even build what you want to build yep without people to do it so sometimes that also then you have to start training people and getting less qualified people to do it wait for them to ramp up i mean there's a whole lot uh, a whole lot you got to deal with there okay Next on the list, how about the discounted cash flow method? We were talking about this a little bit, and that's when you take your forecasted future cash flows and basically apply a little bit of a discounted rate. I mean, it's giving it's giving a little credence to the future while still giving some discount for the fact that the future has yet to occur. Because an investor, it's, everyone that I've talked to that it wants me or us to invest in anything now, I mean, they've got smooth sailing all the way to the moon, right? Yeah, and I actually like this. Uh, I think about this, usually they call it like a clawback or other performance-oriented goals, right? Mm -hmm. Like, okay, I'll, I'll invest a million dollars in full scale, but you've got to do X amount of revenue next year. If you don't, then I own you know more of the company or I own less of the company if you outperform. So as an investor, I like those kind of scenarios, right? Because I want to protect myself. If if you say you're gonna you're going to the moon next year, but you really don't make it, then you know what? I'm going to claw that back and own more of the company. That's another way that yeah, people so do that, this. And that term clawback really is, uh, is a real term. And that's, you know, oftentimes, and so look, this is a way to kind of protect yourself and the investor to protect themselves. It gives you a reward and something like, okay, if this occurs, yeah, I get it. That's fine. Because Really, in the end, if you if you do the math and you figure it out, I mean, 15% of a company that's doing X revenue is worth the same as 25% that's doing Y revenue. It just got to find that balance. And I, I like this, too, from, from an investor standpoint, because, hey, if you're at, hey, founder and team, if you're going to get out there and crush it and make this really make this big. Yeah, I'd love to give you an incentive to do that. Yeah, I like it too. Okay, the venture capital method. Ooh, this maybe this should have been first, but I mean, this is kind of the go-to method for venture capital firms. And, and I mean, it's an option to consider if you need the pre-revenue valuation, that, which by the way, is the trickiest. It, always the trickiest. So it kind of, you know, so basically you're talking about this is, well, there's a couple formulas. One is your anticipated return on investment. And that equals the terminal value divided by the post money valuation. So what does that even mean? I can tell you what it means. Please. 
I've talked to enough that's why VCs. We keep, that's why we, it's why we keep you around, Matt. I, I, I've talked to enough VCs that I know one thing. <laughs> the only thing they know how to do is use Excel. And there's some formula somewhere where they do this, where they're like, okay, we're going to buy this company for X. We got to make, you know, 30% rate of return every year. So we got to be able to sell this company for Y in five years or whatever. And how much more money are we going to have to invest in them? And are we going to hit our, you know, ROI that we told our shareholders that we would hit and blah, 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 blah. They don't know anything else. They just know that it goes in that formula and what number comes out in the end. That's my experience with VCs anyways. Um, it's all back to the spreadsheet. Yeah. So venture capital firms are really like their formula revolves around being right one out of 10 times, but being really right that one out of 10 times. And because of that, they're going to look at, that's why they're looking at things like your total addressable market and, and just all of it. Like what's the size of the opportunity? Because when they're right, like I said, they need to be really right, like big yeah. right. And not just like baby right, like mega right, like getting a hundred times back their money because they're going to cover all the other stuff that fails or just gets stuck in the middle and never really does anything. So, okay. Number eight, Matt, the book value method. Yeah, so it's all based on assets. What What's the company worth based on its actual ah, assets? So this is challenging for yeah, a tech company. Yeah, it doesn't really apply to startups, but you know, if you're a marijuana shop and you got a million dollars worth of weed, then you know it's probably worth a million bucks. Well, it could also. I mean, it, it this this can have something to do with startups, though, because you know we're talking about tech startups. Tech startups can they don't? It's not just software, right? So yeah. there could actually Assets. be hardware and other assets and assets come in many shapes and forms. But this is the, this is what, when, when being looked at with this method, this is one of the most frustrating things that startup founders will go through. And Matt, we've been through it before. And we were, you know, you talk about, you'll see a company, you'll talk to a founder that had a hundred million dollar exit. And they'll tell you that because a bank used the book value method that they couldn't even get a loan or any kind of anything because they didn't have tangible assets like a like a warehouse full of bolts and screws. You know, I think Fullscale has like 200 laptops, so I'll give you like 10 grand for the company. Yeah, that, well we've run into that too. Like we go to talk to the <laughs> bank and they're like, "Well, what are you, what kind of assets do you have?" and you're like, "Yeah, uh, well we own uh, you know, $400,000 worth of laptops." They're like, "Okay, good, that's good." I'm like, "Now they're on the other side of the world." And they'll be, "Oh, yeah, but they're assets." I'm like, Really? Like, are you going to go collect them if you ever needed to? But it's it's goofy. And, you know, some of this, too, though, like there are other things that I think that in tech companies that aren't fully tangible. When I say tangible, I mean like something you hold in your hand, something you open the door to, something you drive around town. Well, patents and IP. Yeah. Yep. Can yep. can be seen, but Absolutely. if they're not generating revenue or money, you're gonna you're gonna have a whole nother pain in the ass to try to put what that value is. So Matt, we just went through eight different methods, and I mean that's eight. And by the way, there's probably eighteen more. Have we answered the question of how to value your equity? Because I still think the best answer is mine when I say it, in the earliest stages, it's about who you're getting the money from and what feels good. 
Well, it's it's all it's all comes down to who will write a check and what they'll write the check for. <laughs> oh, we need that too. <laughs> so wait, it's not just what we think the equity is. That, look, I run in, I've run into too many people, and so if you they come, they're here. Hey, we're raising at a three million dollar valuation. You're like, cool. Do you have any revenue? No. Do you have an MVP? No. What do you have? We've got this sixty pieces of paper that are yeah. telling you this is our blueprint for getting to the moon. And that, I mean, that's. I think it all comes back to the, where we started with the Berkus method, which was those five things, right? Like you gotta have the right idea. And then you talk about prototype, which is like, do you have an MVP? Do you have traction? Like, where are you at with that part of it? The team, it's all about the team. Do you have strategic relationships or partnerships that are really valuable because, you know, Hey, if Elon Musk has agreed to resell your product, that might make it worth more right and then you got rollout sales you know marketing you know it, it's the basics right and if you've got a good story for every one of those you're going to have a higher valuation so some a lot of this comes in as well into play as well and and one thing that we possibly in this episode could have addressed a little earlier is the possible assignment of equity to co-founders yeah or other investors, which by the way, in, the, in part seven of this series, we're going to talk about finding, finding startup co-founders. But this is a huge mistake I see people make. And they're like, they, okay, so Matt, we're going to start a tech company. And I know you write code, but I know you got another job and I can't afford to pay you yet, but I'm going to give you 40% of my company. Why? Yeah, it's um, that part of it's always really hard figuring out how to divide the pie up and who brings what to the company and how much effort they put into it? Did they put money into it? Like all, all of those things combined are uh, make it really difficult to figure out how to split up the pie um, per se. Well, spe well, speaking of pie, and I wanted to mention that there's a, a past guest, Mike Moyer, has a really cool app. Uh, you go to slicingpie.com and it literally assigns value to the sweat equity that mm -hmm. people put in and 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 really kind of controls and takes care of the vesting part of it and really does put a valuation on the the contribution that is made from founders and the thing is is like i mentioned this hypothetical situation where my buddy matt is, who i know writes code but he has another job i'm going to give him a huge percentage of the company the thing you have to ask yourself is, okay, if I were to replace that same effort with someone else that I was just paying to do it, how much would that cost? Yeah. Because if it's just like simplistic stuff, like for example, if you could hire a full-time developer from full scale for $4,000 a month, well, Matt, that person's going to work eight times. If you're only going to do an hour a day and they're going to do eight, they have eight times more contribution so what is what is the replacement value of what you're getting or gaining? And you can look at so many of the things that we've already talked about for valuing that. So now, Matt, if you have some specific attributes, input, experience, or, or possibly connections or street cred, well, those might be pretty valuable. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think the example you just gave goes the other way, too, because let's say you're not a technical person and you desperately need to get some technology created and you don't have the money to hire somebody. That's where you've got to give up some, some equity in the company to get somebody to do the work. And, you know, sometimes it's what you got to do is, is find a technical co-founder or, 
or somebody you can give part of the company. It doesn't have to necessarily be a lot. It could be 5% of the company or whatever. Um, but say, hey, I need you to do this this project because if you don't get it done, the company's never going to succeed. So there, you know, True. you always have to balance that too. If you don't have money, you've yeah. got to give up equity. Yeah, and once again, you don't know if you're right or wrong enough till down the road. So if you're going to make yourself crazy, you got to kind of just get yourself to a point where you feel comfortable with what's occurring and make a decision, yes or no, and you got to live with that for a while. Now, I do want to remind you that when you take on partners and investors, uh, in many cases, it's easier to get rid of your spouse, your or life partner than it is to get rid of the, 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 the co-founder or the investor, because once they have bought in, that's it. And, you know, there's other episodes we'll get into in this whole series, which talk about how to deal with that. Now, I, I, we've got a list of some of the some of the wrong ways to value equity. And before we get into that, I just wanted to throw out another thanks to our crowd. Go to ourcrowd.com forward slash hustle. There's a link in the show notes. If you're interested in investing in startups and you're an accredited investor, they have a really cool platform to take a look at. Uh, you can learn more about their investment platform and how other accredited investors and VCs are looking at stuff just by signing up. It's a free account. It's pretty cool. I I, I, I like what they're doing there. I think it's pretty cool. So, you know, when we get back to the, the subject of, of how to value your equity, I mean, well, the, some of the wrong ways using flawed valuation models. I mean, that's probably pretty easy to do, right? Hey, Uber raised, you know, money at a billion dollar valuation. So, uh, so is my company. It's worth it. So we should too. Yeah, it's worth it. So, well, number two, oh man, Matt, are my financial, are my future sales and revenue projections accurate? Nope. Hell no. I'm sure they are. Hell no. They no. are. They no. are, dude. No. So using, so, so if you're, if you're, if your equity valuations are based on your future sales projections, well, Matt, what's the one thing we've learned about, about business plans? They're all wrong. Correct. So, you know, like it's easy to, to draw the hockey stick and be like, look, you know, four years from now, we'll have 1% of can't... the market and we'll be billionaires. Oh no, that occurs after six months with my plan. Oh, okay. I, we're not waiting four years. We're, we own the planet in four years. Mm. What's that? What's that worth? Is there a model in there for that global domination? All right. So you have other things in here like well, there, look, there really is no rule of thumb on, no. you know, this is over-reliance on it. I mean, these, every deal is different. Uh, blindly, blindly using comparable transactions. Like, I mean, you really have to, like, there's no company that's like yours. No, no, there's not. You could be in the same industry. You can make a similar product, but that doesn't mean the companies are the same. Right? Yep, absolutely. Okay. I mean, that, so... <laughs> I mean, okay, all right. On this, I love this one. Failing to investigate mathematical errors. All right, so, 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 let me give you a comparison, Matt. So people will show. I'm going to give a free shout out to LivePlan.com, and I love yes. LivePlan because it makes making financial projections really easy. And here, the thing is, is when you're using Excel and other stuff, and you're typing it in, a z, an extra zero turns $100,000 into a million dollars with one keystroke. If all the other cells are reliant on the whole thing, it's all screwed. 
It's all, it's all, it's, and there is a lot, uh, there is a lot of places. Now, look, when at, at the last college that I dropped out of, Matt, um, they had classes that were, that were nothing other than creating these kind of financial projections because things like live plan didn't exist, which make it really easy. That's yes. why I love the platform because it's like, and by the way, I have no vest. They are not paying for sponsorship here. I just didn't know how much time, effort, energy, and emotion it saved me. And, you know, that simple zero uh, really does. And it'll throw off an entire table. And, you know, like, so it's you're, really easy to so do So you're that. saying we're not going to the moon because you added a zero. I added two zeros. So it was right. 10 million, not even just one. But the, but, right. but think about that, dude. One zero and, and you have other cells and things that are relying on that. It just messes it all up. And... You know, I, I think it's fair to assume that that you know your your highly optimistic plan is probably wrong, and you know everyone's hoping you get there. But if you don't have a concrete why and how, it's going to be a problem. So, mm, you know, I mean, uh, man, what are some other wrong ways? I think other wrong ways are just literally just just throwing a number out. <sighs> Yeah, I mean, I feel like my company's worth $10 million. I mean, usually when I see things on TechCrunch raise money, it's like, you know, at a $10 million valuation. So, sounds good. I mean, Matt, for you, a $10 million valuation, I mean, why are you shooting so low, buddy? Like, if you are you only working at like 6% of your normal the Watson effect? <sighs> I think that's diminishing over time. <laughs> Maybe that's another 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 episode to get into. So I think when, it, when it, for me, the number one wrong way is literally that shot from the hip. And I think that that's the things that get you in the most trouble is, you know, like I, when I say shooting from the hip, I, I'm talking more about sharing equity with other people, partners, co-founders, stuff like that. Because, Matt, how many times have you seen people give away the farm and then regret it later? Yeah, yeah absolutely. So how do you avoid that? You know, I, from my Venn Solutions days, nobody cared too much about equity or any of that until everybody figured out the company was really worth something. And then all and of a sudden, everybody fight. was willing to fight to the death. And, you know, I had, I had co-founders who tried to stake, like take some of my stock away from me and stuff. And um, yeah, it's nobody cares until everybody figures out it's worth something. And all of a sudden it's a battle. I think the way to avoid it is is to abide by the concept that good fences make good neighbors. And I yeah. think that you, when you make agreements, uh, and I, this is probably the best advice that I have for just startups in general is don't just always don't always plan for the sunny day scenario. Yes. And I see too many too many operating agreements and just contracts in general are all written around like the sunny day. So what happens if things don't go well? What happens if someone dies or gets divorced or does a whole lot of other stuff? And how are you going to handle that? The best way, and while those aren't always inspiring or uplifting conversations, it's usually the best way to handle it up front. Yep. You know, one of, one of the other things I, I think we should talk about um, mistakes people make when we talk about buying the company is we talked about the planning, but I think it's just assumptions. It's assumptions around 
you know, we're going to get our product done. We're going to get it to market. This marketing plan is going to work. We're going to sign up this number of customers. We're going to get this partnership. We're going to, we're going to do all these things. Right. And um, then they don't happen. And, you know, we've even done that with full scale, right? We sit down every once in a while, we make a forecast and we're like, we're going to do this. We're going to do this. We're going to do this. And things never, those assumptions never come to exactly the way that you plan them. And with an early stage company, the odds of them, those assumptions happening is even much, much less, you know, because like you didn't have a product yet. Like you think it's going to be done in six months. You think your marketing is going to work. Like there's so many assumptions. And so um, when you forecast out and you're like, we're going to own, you know, 1% of the market in three years and do a billion dollars in revenue, like three years from now, you're probably still going to be trying to get the damn product finished. Like your just assumptions are all wrong. Yeah, we run into that a lot. I think that uh, I think the number one the the number one assumption that always fails is is over reliance on on a lot of revenue early. Yep. I mean, yep. and that's the that's the I mean, gosh, man, how many times have we looked at plans? Just you and I, and and we've made quite a few investments through full scale. But we'll look at the we'll look at someone's plan and say, this okay, there's nothing. They have not they they have nothing right now, like literally nothing. And this calls for in six months having a thousand users. And yeah. you know, like you said, in six months you're probably still trying to like get something online. And one thing when and you will kind of just roll this straight into the founders freestyle, Matt. But you know, no one knows how long it's going to take to build technology. It's and that's and that's it doesn't make me sound like an expert to say that, but I think that might be the most expert opinion I can give you, is that it's a guess. It is a guess when it comes to the timeline, because there's a zillion things that can throw you offline, everything from people quitting to pandemics to who knows. And you just really like you're hoping that you that you land the product and your launch in a way that is somewhat close. But overall, it's it really is a huge guess. And when it comes to valuing your equity, it it. it I mean, it, and like I said, then one of the least scientific methods mentioned in here, but maybe one of the most reliable methods is how do you feel about it? How do you feel about it as a company? Like Matt, when you became my partner at Gigabook, which then turned into full scale, I, I was asking a much higher price and came way down with that because we realized that we had a good fit. We were friends. We had already been working together. We saw a lot of uh, opportunities that came up and that made it a lot. It made it feel really good for me to engage in that journey. And all of that with someone who had already been there. You'd already exited a company. Stackify was already well in motion. And that had more value to me than someone's check. Yeah, that absolutely. wasn't going to work with me and help with and help me and, you know, help along. So Matt and very un- startup hustle fashion, I'm going to let you take the second freestyle and close the episode out. I think uh, valuation, of course, is always really hard for a super early stage company. But I think that as a potential investor and as a founder myself, the, the thing you always have to think about is how big is the opportunity, right? And how fast can you build the product? How fast can you scale the company? Do you have the team to do it? Um, you know, if you've got a lot of traction, you're like, hey, we, you know, we've got customers lined up. We, you know, all that sort of stuff is totally different than you're like, ah, we, we think we're going to build this thing. We don't really know if we have product market fit. We don't know who's going to buy it yet. We, you know, 
the, the more you have a better idea of <laughs> who your customer is, how you can get to them, having traction with the product, and the more expensive your product is, the more people you can sell it to, all those things together, you know, you're just going to get a much bigger valuation, <laughs> right? If, if I'm looking at, you know, Uber and I'm like, hey, yeah, everybody needs to rent a, a you know, everybody needs to use a car in every city in the world. Like, yeah, that's probably going to be worth a lot of money. <laughs> like the valuation could be really big, right? And so the the total addressable market and, and in those cases, how easy it is to get there. Back to your point earlier about software comes to work every day. I would not want to be in the Uber business of dealing with all those Uber drivers and all that stuff. Uh, I'd rather be in the software side and complexity, right? So valuation's tough. There's no right or wrong way. Well, I'm going to get back to work, Matt. I'm going to go try to find that extra zero in my projections so we can come to a reasonable valuation on the company that I haven't built that is going to be worth a trillion dollars soon. I'm going to go work on software development planning. I can get anything you done, you want done in two weeks and nothing at the same time. I love it. I love it. I'm in. I'll see you next time. <laughs> Startup Hustles brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Make sure you reach down and hit that subscribe button, then come find us on Instagram. See you next time.